Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present, We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. Now, Yasmin Abdel-Magid. She is someone who seemingly needs no introduction. A Sudanese-Australian writer and advocate chastised by mainstream Australian media for calling out racism, Islamophobia or simply naming oppressive and violent systems for what they are. Controversy has made for great but fleeting headlines, but also brewed an environment of unsafety and surveillance that made her leave this country. She's gone on to become a prolific writer and remains staunchly outspoken. Whether through literary essays, educational TikToks or live TV, Yasmin is an assured and intelligent voice, analysing society's systemic challenges, reframing established narratives and making complex ideas accessible to all. Her new collection of essays, Talking About a Revolution, is exactly that, writing about far-off dreams of social change, abolition and justice, feel within reach and with hope. Sarah Khan spoke to her earlier this week, and you'll hear their really rich and thought-provoking conversation today. Yasmin Abdel-Magid. She's a Sudanese-Australian writer, engineer and social advocate. She's just released her fourth book titled Talking About a Revolution, a really beautifully radical and transformative collection of essays on resistance and social change. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sarah. And lovely intro. I really, I, um, I really appreciate that shout out. So thank you. No worries. Um, Well, congratulations on the release of the book. It's been almost a month. How has it been having this out in the world? So it's been a bit of, um, it's been a bit of a a wild ride. Um, It's lovely that there's been lots of press, which has been, you know, some has been delightful, some has been expected from Australian media. So it's been a little bit of a mixed bag, which I expected. Um, But it's also been super wonderful to start. I mean, because it's a collection of essays, it's not a book that people are going to read overnight. But now that it's been a few weeks in, folks are sort of 
reading through it, I'm starting to hear from people, you know, what they think about the different essays, how they're responding. I did get COVID for about two weeks, um, like a week into the release. So it's been, um, I'm kind of almost emerging right now at the moment out of, you know, a couple of weeks of hibernation and being like, oh my God, people are messaging me about my book. This is great. This is the best way to come out of, you know, a couple of weeks of illness. So I guess all to say, um, I have been really honored people engage with the ideas in the collection in a really genuine and thoughtful and considered way and that's honestly the biggest um the biggest reward I think of putting something like this together well I mean like on that you have been writing these essays for over 10 years and a lot has shifted in the world a lot has intersected with your life in a public way too and I'm kind of curious to know what has been happening within your own internal world it's to be honest like I was really nervous uh putting this book out like I think I was really uncertain how it would land with people I think I had a lot of um anxiety about you know this is this was my first kind of step back into the Australian media in a concerted way since I left so there was you know obviously quite a lot of um, apprehension as to what the reception would be and I would also say to be perfectly honest there is a small part of me that's quite proud of you know there was space internally to be quite proud of the work because I think you know this is a collection that shows how far I've come in a way like I have you know from the essay that I published at 22 which is you know really sweet I like I I go back and I'm like oh that's you know I feel really like almost protective over my 22 year old self Mm um and all the way to the essays that you know I wrote when I last year when I turned 30 that are much more complex and um and nuanced and you know drawing on the thinking and hopefully some of the wisdom that I have accrued over the years so I think I have also really been I've been excited to see what other people make of my work I think um that like the highest compliment is to have people engage with my work you know for its ideas and for its complexity and for its nuance um in it rather than just kind of being like oh you're an interesting person like aren't you so like let's talk about how interesting you are I'm like all right like I, I've done that Halos. like what's the next step the next step is let's talk about my ideas let's I want that kind of you know the the meaty debate I want to be challenged I want that's the kind of era that I'm in and so it's been really um it's been really validating I think to see some of that come through as well so for you to be able to publish a work like that with such a transformational transformational journey as well through all of those ideas and through those chapters of your life I mean what like what was that emotional processing for you like and what kind of care were you doing amid all of this and collating these words together yeah I think it was and what what I kind of wanted actually was the to be able to sort of show that journey um and to to chart alongside, you know, my own personal growth. I guess like, you know, I'm just reflecting as you were talking, there are some essays where, you know, I lay out how I feel about something, you know, like working in a really male dominated industry at one particular point. And then a few essays later, it's like, oh, all those things, all those opinions I had, well, it turns out they were maybe not fully on the money. And this was what was actually going on. And this was the dynamic. And I've now learned this thing. And I think that like, 
you know, seeing myself learn all this stuff in almost real time as you go through the book and as I was putting the book together was, was, um, was fascinating almost, you know, it was just kind of, it was really, um, it was also this sense of like, oh, I really have gone through a lot and like learned various things along the way, because I, I think sometimes when you're, you don't necessarily notice that you're changing all that much, right? You don't necessarily like look at yourself and be like, ah, I am currently transforming, right? You're just kind of going through the motions or you're going through the process as it were. So to kind of put all of the pieces next to each other, um, to, uh, to your point, Sarah, I think like also appreciate that I wasn't a fundamentally different person. I had very similar values and I had, you know, the similar passions and so on. It was just maybe the way that I, you know, expressed them or understood them you know, has developed and evolved over time. Um, the experiences that I've had for the fact that I have um, these like snapshots of these markers in time. Um, and it also, I think, gave me some faith that I will hopefully continue to evolve and to improve and to change. And, and that is quite exciting in itself. Like, I think if you'd said to me when I wrote my first essay at, you know, 22, that I would um, be publishing a book of essays like this, less than, you know, at the age of like 31 say and and that I would be living a life where I'm essentially a full-time writer and you know I would have been like what are you talking about I'm an engineer like I don't write things and so like I think there's something quite nice about being like oh gosh what do, what do the next 10 years hold well broadly the tone of your book is actually really hopeful and I can really hear that in your voice as well just like talking through these like beautiful pieces of literature that you've given us and it has a lot of your signature wit scathing analysis and we can really feel how exactly what you're just saying how you've continued to grow as a writer um what is it about right now that aligns with this book being out hmm. I really felt like I had something to contribute to this particular moment in time for a couple of different things. I think that like I have perhaps in, over the last few years gained more confidence, maybe an assurance in my own sort of, you know, political positions or at least my my like a, my approach, you know, I think that like um, in my early years and, and quite often for so many of us, you know, we inherit the positions and politics of our of our parents of the people around us in the community and so on so making your politics your own is a real process and you need to spend time thinking and questioning and so on so personally I felt like it was the right time because I felt like okay I like I can stand behind the things that I'm writing and I feel you know confident and assured and in, in in these kinds of questions and so on and I think also like frankly there, there aren't that many people, I think, writing from the positionality that I'm in and perhaps with the approach that I take. So, you know, there is a great, like, Black radical tradition, lots of writers from the United States and, and Pan-African writers and so on. Um, there are some great Muslim scholars um, who are not from Africa sort of writing at the moment and so on. There are lots of fantastic um, women of different uh, backgrounds and so on. But I hadn't read that many collections from, you know, African diaspora Muslim women who were approaching the world from that perspective, from like, you know, an Islamic liberationary perspective, from like a black feminist perspective, from a, frankly, like a, 
challenging the sort of the, the neoliberal capitalist, bringing together all of these different traditions is kind of one of what I felt was really important for this moment, which is one of great transition, right? I really do think that like so much is up for grabs at the moment. And I'm like, okay, there are some things that I wanna include in the conversation, right? Like there are things that I think we might be missing or certainly, you know, nothing I've said is, is like, the world's most original thing. But what I'm trying to also do is make it really accessible for people, right? Like I, I really hope that my, um, my ideas and my essays are not just super academic, but bringing these kind of academic ideas or maybe these more niche ideas to a broader audience because conversations about prison abolition shouldn't just happen in the, you know, in the university conversations about, you know, the state of, uh, capitalism and so on shouldn't just happen in these niche spaces like how do we how do we bring it to a broader audience and also give more people the tools to be able to engage with these complex topics um because because we all can be part of you know a broader societal transformation and i i want to i want as many as people as possible to be part of that i often remind people like I never studied any of this. Like I studied engineering, you know, like all of my, you know, training on politics and social justice and whatever came from like being in community and came from reading books on my own and trying to like, and learn from, you know, YouTube videos and you know, scholars that I follow on Twitter or whatever. Like, it's like, I am somebody frankly, who was self-taught, um, and that means that I'm also really passionate about, you know, giving other people those as those tools and passing on some of that knowledge and not also making it like, and this is also part of why I wanted to include like my growth and my own personal evolution through putting all these essays together to be like, we don't, we're not born with perfect politics, right? We don't, we don't come out of the womb knowing all the answers. Um, out, we will change and evolve and hopefully, you know, continue to be more progressive and hopefully more gracious and more kind and so on. But I guess like, I think one of the things that has been interesting as I have um, sort of gone deeper down, perhaps like, more of the the like the theory about the, the the sort of social change that I'm interested in you you start to notice it's easier and easier for people including myself to to talk in more jargon or to use shorthand or to expect a certain amount of assumed knowledge that's like why would somebody have that knowledge why like I'm sorry but why is the expectation and also even uh, there's this fantastic um scholar and I mean he is slightly inaccessible uh, but I really love his work um he's working at the moment and his name is Olufemi I want to say Taiwu um and he's I think originally Nigerian working in the United States and he talks about this idea of I think he he calls it epistemic deference but ultimately what it means is that like he was like going through trauma because of your identity doesn't automatically give you knowledge and wisdom it gives you an experience, but you have to do the work to turn your experience into knowledge and wisdom, right? And I think that for me is a really powerful idea because it means that we don't just expect because somebody is in a particular body or having a particular experience that they have you know, the policy answers for how to fix things for everyone, right? Like it is work that we have to do and, and we can get to that point, but from a point of humility. You wrote on abolition, this and this anecdote, this um, 
this story that you told about visiting the National Museum of African-American History, which it's so funny because we've been talking about accessibility and you talk about the security guard that snuck you in. Um, and for those, so those that haven't read the book, can you quickly recount that story? Mm. Yeah, so the National Museum of African-American History, which is also um, known as the Blacksonian in the US, is this incredible building um, and museum that sort of talks about you know, African-American history in the United States. And, and when it opened, it was so oversubscribed that people had to book tickets like multiple months in advance to get in, right? Like it was just like the numbers that they, it just blew the, um, the, the museum people away. They had no idea that so many people would want to come in. Anyway, I had kind of been told I was in the US, I'd been told about this museum and the person I was at a conference, they were like, you have to, like, you just have to go visit it. It's incredible. And I was like, okay. And I sort of wander along and I get there and the security guard's like, where's your ticket? I'm like, I don't have a ticket. Like, can't I just buy a ticket at the museum? Like, and they were like, no. And there was this huge line and he was like, you just, you people, you have to book months in advance. And I'm like, please, you know, I've come all the way from Australia. Like um, there is no tomorrow for me. And he was like, look, I really can't help you. And I literally, like, I, I like literally slunk off, you know, tail between my legs. And I sat on this like bench, you know, within eyeshot of this security guard. And I was just like sad because I had no idea what I was going to do with my afternoon. And then as the line cleared, he sort of like, he beckoned to me. And I was like, what? And he's like, look, just this once, you know, and, and sneaks me in. And I was like, and I say in the essay, like, I don't think he realized, or maybe he did. Maybe that is why he let me in, how transformative that experience was for me. Because I really, like, not only was the museum incredible, and I highly, if anyone makes their way to, to D.C. in the United States, like, really, really make some time for it. But also the bookshop that they had, which was, was just full of books that I had never, uh, that I didn't even know existed. Because again, like I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up around, you know, A, around lots of, ink. like my parents read in Arabic, but also, you know, when they studied, they sort of, the, the books related to their study were in the house, but it wasn't like they were reading books written by Angela Davis. That wasn't necessarily what they had at home, right? Um, so I didn't grow up around, a lot of that literature, a lot of that black sort of civil rights literature. Um, and I walked into this bookshop and I, I like, I literally must, I, I think I, you know, I bought so many books, they offered to ship some back to Australia for free. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, there's so much here that I, I want to absorb and learn from. I love um, all of that. And how this, um, like you spoke about the um, security card breaking the rules for you and this idea that hope comes from recognizing possibility. Um, what's a time where you've recognized possibility mm. like this? Mm. Interesting. I guess like perhaps, and there isn't necessarily like a particular person maybe that comes to mind, but I think, you know, one of the things that I was really proud of with Youth Without Borders, for example. So I started Youth Without Borders when I was like 16 um, and, and sort of ran it for about nine years. And I think throughout that process and since, there are always these moments where you can sort of, you, you give somebody an opportunity that they themselves might not have gone for on their own, right? Like you, 
like for example um giving someone an opportunity to like lead a team for something in particular um and there were a, a few people as we were doing projects in youth without borders where i was like they were like oh i don't think i'm you know i don't think i have the 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 qualifications or I don't think I'm the right person for this. And I sort of, I'm like, no, I, I see something in you. And even like, I was a kid myself. I don't even know what it was that I saw necessarily, but I'm like, oh, I think you'd be at this. And by sort of almost like borrowing confidence, right? Like you give people this opportunity or you open a door for somebody. Um, like a number of those people have messaged me years later to be like, oh, that opportunity gave me the confidence to like, you know, travel overseas and I'd never really left my town or you know take this degree that I'd never really considered doing um and I just I think that like there are so many moments like that in our lives where somebody even for me personally like you know you've always been bringing so much attention as well through your words and through your dialogue um to topics that are for the rest of us mild like I feel like it's things that we wouldn't really deem like we're just like yeah this is what should be happening these are discussions we should be engaging in um and they are seemingly controversial um but that's only because like you're speaking truth to inequity and things that just need to be said um and you know why do you think that mainstream Australia has such a inability to talk about racism islamophobia or even just naming the violence upon which it's all founded Mm. gosh i wish i knew the the categorical answer to this i think my suspicion has always been that australia is like a bit of um it is a country that has not really to be honest i mean maybe with this new government it might be different but not really dealt with its original sin of invasion um, of sovereignty never being ceded and if you build something on a foundation like a rotten foundation that'll always be something that you find very difficult like you're very sensitive then right like anything that even comes close to that area it's kind of like a festering wound really right it like you're really you find it really really difficult to even approach um, that area so I think that at the core of it is something that's inescapable like that that needs to be healed right that needs to be reckoned with and healed and so on I think you know that ultimately is part of Australia's modern challenge is facing um and reckoning with its history the fact that it that Australia is home to the oldest living civilizations in the world is like actually something if we had a different imagination could be the most incredible thing it's so rich you know like I think I think like, um, I just, I don't know, I'm quite often, I think maybe also being outside Australia has maybe given me some of this, the distance and the perspective to be like, you know, um, what is another way that we can engage with this? What is it? How can we be more imaginative? How can, how, how can we envision a different version of what this looks like? Um, and yeah, I mean, look, I think it's very funny when we were talking earlier about like a pieces that we you know that are from the early days one of I found this when I was doing research for my for the pieces to include in the book maybe the first piece I ever wrote was um was a piece titled for the Brisbane 
I'm are we racist? Um, and like, and it was this, you know, it was this like really cute op-ed where I was like, you know, people often say that Queensland's pretty racist, you know. I would say that like we maybe are generally racist, but not specifically so, you know, like they you might not like Muslims, but you like Muhammad down the road. And I was just, you know, I was, I was working so hard. I was working so hard to make things okay. You know, to your point, it's like a really, I think part of the reason I was so allergic to the idea is if you admit there's a problem, you've got to do something about it. Right. And I think that's part of it. It's like people being really afraid that if you pull on this one string and then then we're going to have to do some work. Um, and that's like a scary thing for people. I think as sort of modern societies, we haven't fully figured out as like, what are the rituals for these various phases that we need to kind of go through as a society? What is What does it look like for us to kind of, you know, mourn a, an untruth or a falsehood or a lie that's existed for centuries what is it like for us to you know the truth and reconciliation commission in south africa is often used as an example and i think you know it is an example of a ritual but you can't just have one like it needs to it also needs to be something that is maintained um that is revisited you know i i think there's something really powerful in thinking about the role of like those sorts of rituals in a society and and part of what i think we're struggling with in in the various parts of the world we all live in like like neoliberal capitalism is not an is not a sufficient you know worldview or culture it doesn't have you know the rituals and the the processes and the collective um coming together that i think societies need and have needed but i just want to come back to your writing again um and just in writing about race relations and how now you know, writing from overseas, how does your changing relationship to ideas like diaspora and citizenship impact how you talk about anti-colonial resistance, you know, being from here in so-called Australia now, now over to London? I can imagine um, that it would, it would have um, varying impacts. From colony to colony or former colony to former colony but to the metropole, you know, I think there's something fascinating there's um there's the quote which I always forget to uh acknowledge the original owner of because I can oh I can never remember the name but you know it, the idea of like we are here because you were there um I think I feel very there is something about being in London which is you know the the origin of so much of the kind of uh, coloniality and imperialism that we are still dealing with today that I find if not invigorating then certainly very um, like f- challenging and fascinating in a useful way I guess um, because so many people are here engaging with ideas of anti or post-colonialism with you know, imperialism with the impacts of colonization and the construction of race, but also in thinking of like, what does it look like for us to dismantle these ideas? What does it look like? Like, there's just some, like, I've just learned so much over the last few years. And it's been, it's been really um, enriching, I think, for my political thought. Even like the idea of thinking about race as something, you know, one of my favorite 
theorists who I reference a lot is this guy named Stuart Hall, you know, um, who sort of talks about race as a floating indicator and, and, and places the idea of race or reminds us, you know, as do many other theorists that like race is not this biologically constructed thing, but it is about, you know, indicating something to the society. And also, you know, in, in the way that we understand race today, very much about making money, very much about power. It is linked to power and to finance and so on. And so kind of being able to understand this, um, especially here in the UK, and then being able to apply it. I think it also gives me the freedom to think about, okay, what does a what does a better world look like? What does a more just world look like? What, you know, how do we engage with these ideas not on the terms of those who have defined us, quote unquote, but on our own terms. What does that actually look like? Um, and that is quite exciting, I think, for me. Yeah. Like, I mean, just, to, you know, one of the other essays um, is called Whose Borders Are They Anyway? And I challenge the idea of my own Australian citizenship, but also the idea I think that I'm trying to challenge there is, citizenship more generally like why do we live you know we often forget I think that citizenship um, and borders in the way they are today are a modern invention and an invention of colonial powers and imperial powers as a way of maintaining their own you know their own power and like so we actually don't have to accept them as the only way the world can be organized and like by trying to challenge some of those underlying ideas I think um, I think we can radically reimagine what future we want to build. I mean, when looking at all of these um, systemic critiques, like they're so like being able to particularly get to this point in your life where you have these, you know, the, these tools and these these words, this dialogue, this rhetoric, um, and all of the compartmentalizing of your feelings and emotions around it, and getting it to a place that makes sense. Like, how do you navigate balance? not being overwhelmed by it all because it feels like a really daunting prospect obviously for a lot of marginalized people that are just trying to kind of just get through the day I feel really really lucky actually um to be in a position now where you know a lot of my work is kind of thinking about these sorts of ideas like I'm someone who is essentially a writer like that's you know I don't have actually any other job like you know I'm I'm a self-employed writer I write lots of different forms and that is such a privilege because it means that I can spend my time thinking about these ideas talking to people anyone who will listen about you know my what I'm thinking about um spending I would like to think my time on Twitter is always useful spending an inordinate amount of time on Twitter um you know discussing and, and um interrogating my own ideas and so like I guess because that has become such a part of my like every day I fortunately feel like on one hand although it is overwhelming on the other it just feels like well this is the process that we go through as a as as people, you know, um, and and hopefully like my contribution, uh, you know, as people that want to build a more progressive society and hopefully my contribution to that is to, to be one of the people that helps distill all of these, you know, have a huge funnel and have all this stuff come in and hopefully distill it in a way so that, you know, th the people that read my work can come out with some of the clarity or, or maybe some of the questions even um, that, 
that I have so that not everybody has to go through, you know, the whole process that I've gone through, but, you know, that it can help them shortcut that a little bit. Um, so I guess maybe that's part of my contribution to, you know, for at least this phase in my life, part of my contribution to the, to the struggle or to the, to the resistance, I guess, is like just distilling some of these ideas, making them accessible, but also not making it feel like I have the answers necessarily. I think it's really important to kind of recognize that I'm not coming to people with answers, certainly not yet. I'm coming to people with questions and with, you know, a, um, a call for, you know, a call for people to to think differently and to be imaginative and trying to push people's boundaries a little bit and to say, right, what, you know, just like we've imagined a world with no prisons, let's imagine a world with no borders. What does that look like? Let's imagine, let's radically reimagine our world. Um, and hopefully by getting people to, to think along those lines, you know, together we can, we can imagine um, and bring into life uh, a, a more just future. Everything that you were saying now really is directly linked into what I want to talk about, which is that part of your book, which I love that this is just, it just obviously naturally um, flows out of you. And it's, you know, that sense of hope and it evokes so strongly through your book. And it's such an important aspect of moving towards abolition, um, which you've just been discussed, which you've just been saying. Can you remember a moment or interaction recently where you you felt absolute hope? Hmm. Absolute hope. I think, um, I mean, this sounds so like cliche, but I definitely feel like there is, um, I, I get a lot of hope from, well, actually, what I was going to say is I get a lot of hope from the new generation because it's very true and, um, and I, I'm now old enough to be able to say, oh, then, you know, young people inspire me, you know, which is what <laughs> she was on the other foot. But actually what I was going to, what I actually am going to say is that currently in the UK, there, like, it is the UK summer of strikes. You know, the rail workers are going on strike. The airport workers are going on strike. The posties are going on strike. The barristers are going on strike. And I am here for it. You know, like it is like the cost of living has been going up in this country, like no tomorrow. Um, it we've had you know this country has had like over a decade of austerity and you know conservative party rule etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's just so invigorating to see like collective action um in the you know in the vein of the 70s and 80s and you know 60s 70s you know the civil rights movement and the labor union movement and so on it's so invigorating to see that happen again in this moment because I feel like it's so vital for us in this moment to work collectively and also to organize to specific outcomes, right? I think that like perhaps some of the challenges of previous collective movements um, in, you know, that, that we've seen over the last few years is that like, it is about, it's about raising the consciousness around a particular issue, whether it's, you know, sexual violence or, you know, white supremacy and so on. But on that, I think being able to campaign for like very specific policy outcomes or very specific things like we want more money for our workers or we want, um, you know, people to be protected or we, you know, we need to change how this industry works. Like seeing people come out and organize 
in a very like for these specific outcomes is just it's great it's great and also what's been great is seeing everybody else around me love it right like even though like having public transport not work for a week in in London is like an actual nightmare but everyone has been like it's a nightmare but we really support it and that is great because it means that you know like it's it's the people are behind the unions which is not something um you know we could have guessed would have happened necessarily but we are nearing the end of our chat I wish I could just yarn to you forever um but we are nearing the end of our chat and we do ask this question of all of our guests. And that is, Yasmin, when did you realise there was power in your race? The real answer would probably be when I moved to the UK um, and realised that, you know, like I grew up being Sudanese when I was growing up wasn't, like there are loads of Sudanese people in Australia now, North and South. There were not when I was growing up. I grew up in Brisbane and we were one of the very few Sudanese. There were very few black Africans in general. I did not understand my, I did not understand what it was to be part of a big, powerful group of, of people can by, you know, a racial background. Um, but when I moved to the UK, I remember so distinctly, one of the first events I went to was like a a black British Muslim event, very niche. Um, and it was kind of talking about the experience of being um, black and Muslim and what it meant to sort of bring these experiences, but also these traditions in this into the same space. And it actually, it was the first time where I was like, oh, I am part of a tradition that has power and I'm part of this collective. And these people are my age and they've grown up in, a, in an English speaking Western society. Um, and I'm not actually, you know, I'm not unique and it's great. Like I don't want to be, you know, the unicorn. I actually am part of this whole, this room is full of people that look like me or variations of, of me. And that is just the most incredible thing. Um, and and more recently being part of the Black Writers Guild here in the UK has been like, oh, when we come together, you know, united by a racial category that we never chose, but we have turned into something that's powerful for us, there is something pretty transformative in that. Why you want catch my eye when you already know that I'm taking? Nah, like really. How you pass through on payments and I'm seeing you on vacation? Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.